0: It's Monday, November 27th, 2017. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is The Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, this again is our weekly Monday morning Bible study, and today we are continuing our study on the gospel according to Luke, and today we are joined by David Wooten, who is the director of our Florida office, and David has been a pastor and such a great friend and has pastored many churches, and today he is going to walk us through Luke chapter 3, verse 21, through Luke chapter 4, verse
1: 13. Thank you, Herbie, and thanks to you for listening to today's edition of the Defender Podcast. Our staff has been going through a study of Luke's gospel, and today we pick up in Luke chapter 3. So if you have a Bible nearby and are able to follow along, then... Turn your Bible on or open it up, click, swipe, flip to Luke chapter 3, and we want to begin in verse 21. We're going to go from Luke chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. Several different things happen in this passage or these passages of Scripture, beginning in verse 21 with the baptism of Jesus. Luke says in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, I take delight in you. So here we see Jesus being baptized. We know from Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel that it was John the Baptist that baptized Jesus. But we also know from a verse earlier here in Luke chapter three, uh, chapter three, verse three, that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so that begs the question, why did Jesus, the sinless son of God who needed no repentance, present himself to be baptized by John the Baptist, who baptized with a baptism of repentance. Why was Jesus baptized? Jesus didn't need to repent. Well, actually, this is a question that has stumped uh, Bible scholars and theologians, um, and even stumped John the Baptist himself, because in Matthew's Gospel and in John's Gospel, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, John the Baptist said, in essence, Lord, it's not right that you should be baptized by me. I'm the one that should be baptized by you. You don't need to repent. I'm the sinner here. I'm the one that should be repenting. And he asked uh, Jesus to uh, baptize him. But Jesus instead presented himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. So why did he do that? Why was Jesus baptized by John the Baptist? Well... In my opinion, it is because Jesus came to be the sin bearer. And as the sin bearer, he had to enter into the sin of his people, not committing sin, not being sinful himself, but entering into the sin of those for whom he would be a substitute as the Lamb of God. Jesus never sinned, but he identified himself with sinners. And this baptism is just another way where Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, is entering into the sin of those for whom he would die on the cross. So here's the question I would pose to you today. What did Jesus do for you to obtain your salvation if you are a believer in Christ? Well, you ask any Teenager in the church youth group, and the answer would probably be what did Jesus do? Well, He died on the cross for my sins. And yes, He did do that. Jesus Christ took our punishment when He died on the cross. But if that's all He did, that would have only wiped the record clean. That would have only put us back at square one. That would only put us back into a state of neutrality and put us again at the mercy of our own righteousness or unrighteousness. And so the, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins is not enough to get you into heaven because no one can get into heaven with unrighteousness they must have a perfect righteousness and the only way we can have a perfect righteousness is for us is when we receive a righteousness that is not our own theologians speak of that as an alien righteousness or uh, an imputed righteousness and so what Jesus Christ did on our behalf was not only to die on the cross for our sins which took the penalty of sin away but he completed and fulfilled every demand and stipulation of the law of God through his active obedience. It was his passive obedience, which was his death on the cross that paid the penalty of our sin. It was his active obedience in fully keeping the law of God uh, as our substitute to procure for us a righteousness that would be imputed to our account, And it's through his righteousness that we are saved and not our own. And then we see something very interesting here at his baptism. We see the Holy Spirit of God descending from heaven in the appearance like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Here in the New Testament, uh, we see the voice of God speaking for the first time in the New Testament. We also see the Spirit of God descending upon the Son of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see here a demonstration, a manifestation of the Trinity, as it were. This baptism marks the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, It is the first time that God the Father would say, this is my beloved Son. He would say it again at the transfiguration, and he would say it again just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ. But it's important to note that here and in many other places in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is taught concretely throughout the scriptures. One God existing in three persons, one in three, three in one. It is a tremendous transcendent truth this doctrine of the Trinity. Even though the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity is is taught throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Then we come in Luke's Gospel to verse 23 of chapter 3, where he begins to present a genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is not the first time in the New Testament that we have seen a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. It's interesting to compare and contrast those two genealogies. When Matthew presents his genealogy of Jesus, he traces the line of Jesus through Joseph, his earthly father. When Luke is presenting the genealogy of Jesus here in Luke chapter 3, he is tracing the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus through his mother, Mary. Why did is the difference here? What, what was the purpose in these two different genealogies? Well, Matthew, you remember, is writing to a Jewish audience. He is trying to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews and has a legal right to the throne of David. That legal right would have come through the line of his father. And so, therefore, Matthew is tracing the line of Jesus' genealogy through Joseph and goes all the way back to Abraham who is the father of the Jewish nation Jesus king of the Jews traced back through the the royal line of David all the way back to Abraham father of the Jewish nation but Luke here in this gospel is not writing to a Jewish audience he is writing to a gentile or to a non-Jewish audience His focus has been, in these opening chapters, on the virgin birth of Jesus. Luke is tracing the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, not to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, because Luke is presenting Jesus as the Savior of the world, as the Savior of uh, all of humanity, uh, and not just the Jewish nation. And so Luke traces this genealogy all the way back to not Abraham, father of the Jewish nation, but to Adam, the father of the human race. And so we see in verses 23 through the end of the chapter, verse 38, this genealogy of Jesus through the line of Mary extending all the way back to Adam. Then we turn the page and come to Luke chapter 4. And it's in Luke chapter 4 that we see the temptation of Jesus. The Bible says, Then Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Well, there's much to consider in this passage, but let me just point out quickly that it was the word of God, The Holy Scriptures that Jesus used as a weapon to combat temptation. This is a wise example for us to follow when we are tempted. When we are tempted, we need to combat that temptation with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Satan is trying to cause doubt on the Word of God. He said in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, well, God had already said in the previous chapter, "You are my beloved son," but now Satan's trying to cast doubt on that, just like he did to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, "Don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden"? And uh, and so, Satan's strategy, his ta- excuse me, his tactic is to is to cause doubt upon the Word of God, to cast doubt upon the Word of God. But the believer's greatest strategy against temptation is the strategy that Jesus employed, and that is to fight temptation with Scripture itself, with the Word of God. God's Word is the basis for our victory over the flesh, over the world, over the devil. God's Word is our weapon in overcoming temptation temptation. So believer, today, when you face temptation, and you will, be prepared to combat that temptation, to get victory over that temptation by combating that temptation with the weapon of the Word of God. Thanks for listening today.